Please turn with me to John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. And you can also read along on page 8 of your bulletin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. <clears throat> There's an enormous amount of spiritual hunger uh, in society today. And modern people are moving away from the notion that science, that reason is all there is. Why? Because if you look back at the ancient uh, uh, religions, they look back at these religions and they said they were so primitive back then. They lacked science back then. That's, they lacked evidence. And as a result, that's why they turned to these primitive beliefs and gods. But today we have the most technologically and scientifically advanced society in history, and yet we still haven't solved the same problems that they were trying to solve eons ago. We still haven't solved issues of poverty, disease, ethnic superiority, violence, evil. In fact, the 20th century statistically is the bloodiest century in the history of the world. So there's this increasing number of people that are returning to the church and are asking the question, who is Jesus again? Who is he? And one of the best things you can do to come to or arrive at an answer to that question is to hear what Jesus actually said about himself. And so during this period of Lent, and Lent is a period where there's tremendous spiritual renewal and revival, and, and around this period, there's almost a heightened sense of spirituality among people who are seeking or wanting to learn. And during this period, the 40 days before Easter, we are focusing, we are looking, we're taking a step out of our current series, and we're looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel according to John. Last week, we started off, we heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. Today, in John chapter 8, verse 12, and we're really going to just focus on two verses today. We're not going to go through the whole text. I wanted to give it to you for context, but I want to unpack just that verse. Verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We're going to quickly look at four things today. What did Jesus mean by having the light? What does he claim by saying that he is the light? How do you get that light? How do you apply that light? What does he mean? What is he claiming? 
How do you get it? How do you apply it? Okay, those are the four things. First, we're going to look at the meaning. What did Jesus mean when he says, I am the light of the world? What is that? First, it means a couple of things. First, sunlight, the light of the world, is what? It's the source of all life. Without it, all of life will end. That's what Jesus is saying when he, when he means, I am the light of the world. We're not, we're not, but we're not just talking about physical life, bios, that's the word in Greek. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a light that sustains life, that prolongs life, that, that preserves life, that enhances life. Verse 12, he says, if you follow me, you will have the light of life. That Greek word, light, is not the Greek word bios, which means physical life. He's talking about zoe. In other words, Jesus is not talking about your physical life. On one hand, yes, having him means you have life, just the way you need the sun to have physical life. But he's saying that there's actually something more important than that. It's something that gives life to your soul. He's talking about the zoe life, the quality of life, real life, the meaningfulness of life. In Iceland, you can, there, you, there are periods of the year where you can go days without sunlight. And it's proven that people who live under those conditions experience great depression throughout the course of their lives. We're talking about a light that gives joy. See this call to worship? What does the call to worship say? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They've seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. That's what he's saying. Second, light isn't just the source of life, but it's the source of reality. It's the source of truth. What do I mean by that? Think about what light does. I'm going to give you a couple examples. If you really want to see something, if you really want to uh, understand its dimensions, its contours, its immensity, you know, you go to the Grand Canyon, you see the vastness and the immensity and the beauty and the depth, you need light. You can't see it in the darkness. Light bounces off of that mountain. It bounces off of that canyon. It bounces off of that valley. And what it does is it hits your retina, and your brain processes that, and that's how you see, right? You need light to see. Or when you're sleeping, for instance, let's go the opposite way. You wake up in the middle of the night. You're thirsty. You go downstairs in the middle of the night to go to, the, uh, to, go to your kitchen. And what happens? Your eyes haven't adjusted, and so... You stub your toe, you know, against the leg of a piece of furniture. That always happens, right? Or for those of you who are parents, there's not a single parent in this room who's not stepped on Legos, right, on the way to getting something, right? And there's tremendous pain. You experience the pain of that. Why? It's not because the bed exists. It's not because furniture exists. It's not because Legos exist. It's because you didn't see it. And so it hits you or you hit it, Right? What you saw, what your eyes saw, what your eyes processed was darkness. That's what you call your visible reality. But there's so much more than that, right? There's so much more. You just didn't see it. Light is a source of truth. Thirdly, because light gives you real sight, because light reveals, because light exposes, because light gives you a view of reality, that view, because of that, it protects you. There's protection there. And because it protects you, I mean, how many crimes, you're certain to say that statistically there are more crimes uh, committed in the dark than during times of daylight. 
right? Even in the most dangerous parts, you're going to see that. Light by nature is going to protect, and because it protects, there's comfort. Because it protects, there's courage. Your child goes to bed at night, but you're still up. I mean, your child goes to bed early, 7.30, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, right? Your child goes to bed. You're up. You're doing laundry. You're watching TV. You're, you know, responding to emails. You're texting. You're looking at social media. You're resting. But then you hear a small creak in the door and some pitter-patter of steps upstairs. You hear the door open, and there's a wailing. There's crying, right? So what do you do? You run upstairs, and the first thing you do is you take the child You usher him back into his room, and you turn on, sometimes, a small light. Why? Because instantly, because light exposes, because light reveals, there's comfort. There's courage. That child is seeing monsters. That's his visible reality. So what do you do? You turn on the light, and you say, see, that's just shadows. You see that? You see that branch that's moving out in the window? That's just shadows, right? Instantly, because light exposes and reveals, there's comfort, and that lends to courage. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, it sounds wonderful, but it's also incredibly dangerous. Think about this. If you're exposed to light, uh, and if you're exposed to sunlight, and that light is unmediated, you know, you're unclothed, and you're exposed to constant sunlight, what happens? Look at the environment. Light penetrates through the solar system, right? And if it wasn't for just the basic layers and the strata of our atmosphere, which acts as a mediator, light would be so much more harmful to our bodies, not because you don't have enough light, but because you have too much light. Many more people will be suffering from cancer. Oceans would dry up. There would be desert, wasteland. That, the number, the amount desert and wasteland would increase, and we would eventually and effectively die. Not from having enough light, but from having too much light. Look at a campfire. Campfires are beautiful. Fire pits, beautiful. There's something about it. It gathers people. It draws people. Why? Because we're attracted to light. It's bright. It's brilliant. It's warm. But the closer you get to that fire, the danger, the risk increases. And if you get too close, that brightness which gave you sight, which gave you, uh, which reveals and exposes, now starts to blind you. If you get too close, that brilliance that you are so attracted to starts to deteriorate you. That beauty that is so attractive starts to overwhelm you and actually starts to destroy you. So it actually takes away what used to give you joy can actually take away your joy. The worst thing that ever happened to a young a teenager, everybody's gone through this, everybody here has probably gone through this, but one of the best things and the worst things about being a, a, a teenager is what? Is that junior high or, or high school dance, right? It's an exciting time if you're a teenager, but it's also a terrifying time. Why? Because around that age, you have bad acne. Around that age, you have bad hair. I mean, there's not a single teenager, right, that doesn't have bad hair. Uh, around that time, you have bad dance moves, Right? Now, on the dance floor, the light is dim. You can't see the acne. You can't see the hair. You can't even see the dance move sometimes. So you can't see the flaws. But when the lights come back on, you almost want to hide yourself. You need a mediator, right? Because now people get to see you sweaty and bad outfits, bad dance moves, but bad 
acne, right? You see all that. You're confronted with the reality of who you are. The light is too revealing. It's too exposing. It kills you. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you ever touch the sun? Of course not. You can't touch the sun. It will destroy you. The closer you get to it, you'll be consumed. And yet he's inviting you to come near to him, and he is the ultimate brightness. He is the ultimate brilliance. And he says, I want you to follow me. I want you to make your orbit. Stop orbiting around lesser lights, and I want you to orbit around me. Follow me. That's what he's saying. That's the meaning. Secondly, the claim. Verse 20, we learn that Jesus said this in the place where offerings are placed. That's that's the treasury of the temple. And the writer says, when he said this, they didn't kill him. Why did he say it? It's kind of almost like a non sequitur. Why, did he, why, did they, why would they want to kill him? Because John's saying, because if you really understood what Jesus was claiming at that time in those days, in those ancient religious times, when you really understand the depth of what Jesus is claiming when he says that I am the light of the world, they would want to grab him. They would want to torture him and kill him. What is he claiming? In verse 12 he says, and when he said again, Right? That's what it says in verse 12. That means that, you know, Jesus said this before. When did he say this before? In John chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem, and it's on the last night of what we call the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the greatest feasts, one of the three mandated feasts throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the greatest feasts that were observed throughout the year. That feast ran for about seven days, a week long, around the time of the harvest. And basically what it did was it commemorated God's, it was a remembrance or commemoration of God's provision for his people while his people were wandering around in the desert wilderness for 40 years after they were freed from slavery from Egypt, from the land of Egypt. You see this all the way in the Old Testament in the, in the, gospel, in the book of Exodus. Now, there were no harvests during that time. They were in a desert. There were no harvests. There were no crops. There was no food. There was no water. They had no homes. They were not a nation at the time. But once they came into their own land, one time a year, God's people were called together to celebrate what God provided for them during this time, to celebrate what God, it was God's way of saying, I want you to never forget that I have been faithful and that I have always provided for you when you were in need. And that does not change even though you are in your own land because there is a greater provision to be had. Now, one of the things that they did during this feast was they literally came out of their homes and they lived in tents. They lived in these booths. They lived in huts. And part of it was to remember what it was like when they were wandering in the wilderness. For some reason, God wanted them to relive what it was like to basically never to be comfortable with where they are, to relive what it was like when they just relied on God and they didn't always do that well. They were so unfaithful. They were doubters. They wanted to kill Moses. They were constantly grumbling and complaining. But God wanted them to remember what it was like when they didn't have a home. And every night, they would go to the temple and they would light these giant candelabras in the temple, right in that place where the treasury is, right in that place. They would light these giant candelabras. These candelabras were about 75 feet in height. And they would basically light these up and... uh, The lamps, they had these huge lamps in it in the temple, and when it was lit, it would light up the rest of the city. It was so bright. You see? And the people danced, and the people celebrated during these seven days because they remembered how God had provided for their needs 
all their needs. They didn't have anything. They didn't have water. They didn't have food, the basic necessities. And yet God provided. They didn't have a home, but they had a home. They didn't have water, but God provided water. They didn't have food. You learned last week, God provided manna. They didn't have light. So God was their light. And so with that light came joy and protection and comfort, you see, and life. How did God provide light? In the daytime, God would appear in this giant cloud, in this giant cloud. And that cloud sheltered them from the brilliant sun in the desert. Because, the, you know, the desert sun is very hot. So that cloud would radiate and it would protect them. And they would, they would follow this cloud. Where the cloud went, they went. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. Now remember, they lived in the desert. And when the sun goes down in a desert, it gets very cold, right? So that cloud would start to radiate brightly. And in that pitch darkness of the desert, it would become a pillar of fire. And that fire would lead them. And that fire would protect them. It would protect them against their enemies. When they arrived at Mount Sinai, that fire came down onto the mountain, and it came down with thunder, and the people were afraid. Moses himself was terrified. And when they built this tabernacle, the fire of God appeared over it. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. When that tabernacle was a portable temple, essentially, they would take it down, move with it, build it up again. That cloud would come right down, and that glory would fill the tabernacle. When they built the temple, which was their permanent home, the glory of God, the glory of fire would come down, and it would fill the temple. You see? That was the Shekinah glory presence of God, the brilliance of God, the beauty God, the light of God. It was the light of his presence. That's what it was. And so during this feast of the tabernacles, the people would celebrate and they would dance and they would remember that this time, in this time in their history, they they, they would remember that. They would remember what God provided in this time. And they lived in tents to recall time when God had led them. And so every night they would light that candle until you get to the last night. On the last night, they wouldn't light it. It was kind of a remembrance time. It was a solemn time. They were getting ready to take everything down. Kind of like um, when you take a Christmas tree down after Christmas. It's kind of a solemn time. It marks the end of something. Now you know that your time of rest is over. Kind of like when you, on the last night, I don't know, of a retreat, you start to see all the decorations and stuff get taken down. It's kind of a, except it was way worse than that. It was a solemn time. It was a time where people kind of looked at things in sobriety and solemnitude. It reminded them of a time when the Israelites, they rebelled against God. They departed from God. They walked away and oftentimes disobeyed God. And, you know, they, this was a time that God's glory had left them. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, at a time when the Israelites, Israel was so rebellious, the prophet Ezekiel looks up and he, see, he literally saw the glory cloud of God lift up from the temple and depart, and it never came back. It never returned. Prior to Ezekiel, you see this in 1 Samuel, the wife of the evil priest Phinehas, it was an evil priest, but this is his wife, upon hearing that his husband had died, she sees, and she also hears news that the enemies that captured the ark, which is the presence of the Lord, 
She, she's about to give birth. She's pregnant. And in that moment, her husband dies, the ark is captured, and she gives birth to a child. She names that child Ichabod. It's Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word for e kavod. The word kavod means glory, the glory of God. E kavod, no glory. The glory of the Lord has departed from us, and then she dies. That despair is what these people were experiencing on the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles. There's the darkness and the dimness, the despair and the coldness. And so now here in John chapter 7, Jesus Christ walks into the temple. And here in John chapter 8, Jesus is literally in that place where those candles stood. It's dim in the temple. Now it's cold in the temple because it wasn't lit. And he's right in front of the candelabra. And that's where he cries out in that dimness, in that coldness, I am that light of the world. I am the kavod glory. It's my glory that filled the temple, and now I am here. My presence has returned. What those Israelites saw in the desert that led them and guided them and protected them and preserved them all those years, my glory, that glory is mine and now I am here. That glory that filled the temple, what you are longing for, what's, what's driving that solemnity and that emptiness in you, that intimacy is now present. It's me. And you can come near to me. And if you come near to me, the closer you come to me, you will experience the warmth and the beauty and the life and the truth and the joy of that intimacy, the intimacy of God's embrace, because I am the source of that. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable claim. The presence of God used to be in this radiant cloud. You couldn't go near it. And now that radiant cloud, that radiance and beauty and brilliance is clothed in flesh. And you can see him face to face. You couldn't see him face to face before. You can see him face to face. And he says, you can touch him. It's so important. You know why it's important? In the gospel according to Luke, right, and that's the third book of the gospels in the New Testament, there's a leper. And lepers were banned from the city. They weren't allowed even to enter into the city. You kind of relate with this right now. You couldn't go into the certain parts of the city where there were lots of people because there was no cure for this disease. If you were a leper, you were a carrier of death. You were literally a carrier of death. And so you were cast out. You were alienated. You were quarantined. That's what happened. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for sin in our lives. And the thing is, in those days, just like today, we are so much more concerned and consumed, right? The anxiety, we're so much driven by the anxiety of some alien uh, virus, right? Some alien plague, then the fact that it's really a metaphor for the carrier of death is us. We are our sin. That's actually the real thing that's destroying us. That's what the Bible's saying. And just like a virus would alienate you from the people in the city, sin alienates us from God. And so this leper, he, what does he do? He risks his life to go into the city because he hears of Jesus. And so he fights his way into the city, and, you know, the people are either abhorred or they're ready to somehow, they, they got to get him. They got to do something about this. But what he does is he approaches Jesus, and he pleads, when he finally sees him, he pleads with Jesus, and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus, he didn't have to touch him. He could have been like, whoa, 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 you're good. Go show yourself to a priest. You're healed. 
In fact, he didn't have to have him come. He could have been like, you know what? There's a leper out there. They're all clean. He could have done that. Why does he wait for the leper to make his way into the city in front of all these people? Well, you know what he does? He touches him. He says, your sickness is now mine, and my healing is yours. That's what he's saying. You can go now. I am willing, he says. You're clean. He touches him. Many of us, many of us go to Jesus. Many of us come to church because we say, you know, when I come to church, it's fulfilling. I find meaning here. I find purpose here. I find community here. You know, Metro, one of the probably the most welcoming and warm communities I can think of. You know, the word community is such a, it's almost like a, a cliche here. You know, I'm coming for community. I want community, right? We say that here, right? But my question to you is, have you experienced that touch of God? Because there are times when it's not fulfilling to be a Christian. I'm a pastor. I say this all the time. You know, I go through that at least several times a week. It's not fulfilling. You know, there are times when it's hard. You know, right now, people aren't gathering like this, right? They're running. There are times when it's hard to live that life. It's not fulfilling. It's not satisfying. But many of us come to church and we say, well, I, I, I find satisfaction. Um, Jesus gives me purpose. Jesus gives me meaning. But what happens in the times when he doesn't, it doesn't feel purposeful? Do you still go to Jesus? What, what if when it's not fulfilling, do you still go to Jesus? What if when you're suffering, do you still go to Jesus? You would only go to Jesus not because he fulfills you, not because he satisfies you, not because he gives you everything you want, but because he's real. The question is, is he real? Did the resurrection happen? Is he real? Is he personal to you? What I mean by that is, is the reality of Jesus, that glory of God, has it touched you? What I mean by that is, has it become personal in a way that the reality and the truth and the light and the life, has it shaped your life? Verse 12, whoever follows me will have the light of life. That means you're going to have that radiance, that that radiance pass into you to make you radiant, that that beauty pass into you to make you winsome, that that warmth pass into you to make you a warm person. Did, did the, does the fact that he has satisfied and truly healed you, did that healing pass into you so you can heal others? And are you truly healed or are you truly healing? Do you really live free of guilt and your past? Do you really feel and sense and know that you are secure even in the midst of your sufferings? What are the implications of knowing that Jesus Christ is personal? One, he says, I am the ultimate light. I am the ultimate life. That implies that unless you come to him, you are still in darkness. That means unless you come to him, you are still blind. You see that? When you stop going to Jesus, when it's, when it's convenient for you to supplement your life, and he actually starts to shape the, your understanding of reality. When he actually starts to shape, you know, I used to view life this way, and this is what you were supposed to do. This is what it means to live life. And now he completely shapes that and says, no, I realize I was wrong. This is how you're supposed to live life. This is what it means to be shaped by the gospel. This is what it means to come to Jesus. Once you've made that shift, we call that repentance, right? We call that new life. It's so new 
that Jesus referred to it as being born again. You see that? Number two, I mean, how do you know what's real? How do you know what's really important in your life? You know, what guides you versus the things that you thought, you know, they're just mere moons, glimpses of the real light. Secondly, when Jesus says, I am the light, he's saying, I am ultimate truth. I am that source of ultimate truth. The author of Hebrews says that the Son, Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is that fire. He is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of his being. In other words, if you want to experience real reality, the reality about yourself and who you are, the reality of God and who he is, if you want to experience that, then if you really want to know God, if you really want to see God, you can only come through Jesus. That's what he's saying. Thirdly, he says, I'm the only source then of real comfort in your life. As you get older, you realize more and more how dangerous and violent and evil and uncertain and uncontrollable this world is. And, you know, that kind of shades your view of the world. You know, you can easily become cynical because when you're in the darkness, there's no color. There's no color. And because there's no color, what makes something beautiful? Light and color is what makes something beautiful in many ways, right? But when you're in the sunlight, you see an array of colors. Light is hitting you from all over the place, and you see the beauty. Jesus says, you want to find beauty? You want to become beautiful? Jesus says, you want, you want a beautiful lover? You want a beautiful body? You want to experience beautiful places or, or see or hear or read beautiful art? Those things are only glimpses of ultimate beauty. A lot of us think, oh, I'm going to find beauty by pursuing this type of career. If I just have this, then I will be acceptable because that is beautiful. If I can just find this type of person or raise this kind of family or live in this kind of neighborhood or have this kind of of retirement account, then I will be acceptable. To be acceptable is to be beautiful, right? That's what we say. Jesus says, you want that? Those things are only glimpses of the true beauty. They're just mere reflection, shades, almost to the point where it's like black, it's just black and gray compared to the ultimate beauty that is who he is. He says, I am that beauty that you've been longing for and serving and just laboring and pursuing all your life. And when you come near to me, who owns the world? Who controls the world? I do, he says. You can trust the creator of the universe that nothing happens outside of his control. Why is there suffering in the world? One of the questions that every pastor gets asked, why is there suffering in the world? What they're really saying is, why am I suffering? I don't know. That's the answer. Anybody tries to tell you anything else, I don't know. Okay? But if you believe that Jesus Christ has the power to stop it and he chooses not to, then you have to at least be open to the possibility or the reality that he has a wisdom that you don't have or do not see. If he has the power to stop it but doesn't, he must have a wisdom that's that's telling him, I'm going to move, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. He is the only source of truth, comfort. 
for he is the only source of ultimate joy, a joy that lasts beyond circumstances, a joy that lasts and sustains beyond suffering. And there's, there's so much more I can say about this, but I'm going I'm to kind of end uh, the implications with this one. Jesus is saying, when I am the light of the world, I am the ultimate protection, the ultimate comfort, I am the ultimate courage because I am the ultimate mediator. In order to have light, you need a mediator. Remember, in the Old Testament, when God came near, his brilliance was so bright, his beauty was so overwhelming, that while the Israelites were in the desert and the enemies would come and attack, the glory cloud of God would come down and pretty much wipe out his enemies, right? Wipe out the Israelites' enemies. That's what he would do, right? And it's not because they were so bad and the Israelites were so good. In fact, it was, they were all sinful. They were all equally sinful, actually. But the Israelites had a relationship with God, And so, and the enemies, they didn't have a mediator. If you have a relationship with God, you have a mediator, right? He's a mediator. He stands in between. Moses at one point says, God, I want to see you face to face. Now show me your glory. And God says, I want to, but I can't. I can't. Because if I want to, if I come near to you, my beauty is so brilliant, it will consume you. But, what God does is he puts him in a cleft of a rock. He says, I want you to hide in this rock so that when my glory passes by, you will get a glimpse of who I am. And as the glory passed by, Moses is hidden in this cleft of a rock. And he's able to capture a glimpse of the beauty of God in his back. You see? But Jesus says, you don't just get a glimpse of me. You don't just get a glimpse of my back. You get to see me face to face tangibly and palpably that's why he's in flesh you can touch you can even kill right he says you can touch me because i am the mediator i stand between rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee jesus is the rock behind which we hide to get all of the glory of god that means you get all the intimacy That means you get all the warmth. That means you get all the embrace. That means you get all of the beauty. God said no to Moses. He says you can't have all of it because it will wipe you out. And we have been wiped out. I mean, when you come home after a day, you're wiped out, aren't you? It's because you've been pursuing far lesser lights. It's why you're working so hard, trying to keep up, trying to stay young, trying to stay beautiful, trying to get your kids to experience the things that you never got to experience, to have a beauty that you never had, you see that? To be accepted in a way that maybe you were never accepted, and you're working so hard to have that. Because to have that beauty is to be acceptable. It's to have the brilliance and the glory, and it won't last. You know why it won't last? Because you're trying to get something eternal, On your own, you are finite through finite means. It's a bad equation. You can't get something to last forever, right? If you yourself do not, and you're doing it in ways that do not. You see that? And it leaves you with what at the end? Darkness and coldness. Anxiety, fear, and despair. So how do you get it? How do you get it? Centuries later, Jesus Christ is on a mountain with his disciples And in one moment, his clothes become radiant. His face becomes brilliant and radiant. And the disciples, they see Jesus all of a sudden talking to Elijah and Moses beside him. And they're talking. And Peter, he starts to get it. Peter says, let me build a tabernacle. Let me build a tent. 
Let me build a booth for you. Let me get one over you and Elijah and Moses. Why? Because Peter, he's starting to understand this is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is about Jesus. And because Jesus is the glory of God, he said, this hasn't happened since the time that God has departed from the temple. And I'm seeing it here on this mountain. Let me build a temple around you. This is the glory that left, and now I see it in Jesus. He gets it. He's starting to get it. And suddenly, the glory cloud of God envelops them, and the disciples are terrified, it said, and they hear a voice, and the voice is what? This is my son. That's what he says. They are in that glory cloud, and they are not consumed. Why? Because Jesus is the mediator. They're not consumed. They were supposed to get wiped out in the cloud. They lived. How? And it wasn't fully clear to Peter, but it's absolutely clear to us today because on the cross, that same Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world. He was enveloped in darkness. Do you know that on the cross there was darkness? Complete darkness. They said the skies grew dark, and all of a sudden, uh, <clears throat> on the cross, the rocks started to shake. There was an earthquake, and it was like the earth was falling apart. Why? Because we said when there's no light, there's no life. The earth is falling apart. The temple curtain is torn in two. And on the cross, in that moment, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does he mean? What he's saying is, I am the temple. I am the true temple where God dwells. I am the true tabernacle where God is indwelling. That's what it means when we say the Shekinah glory of God. That's the indwelling glory of God. I am the true temple, the true dwelling. I am the light of the world, and that light has departed from me. The glory of God has truly departed from me, and now I am truly alone. I have no glory. Ikavod. I am the ultimate Ikavod. There is no glory. And that's why Jesus Christ is our rock. We get to hide in him. The wrath of God is pouring out like the sun onto Jesus. And we get to hide behind the cleft of the rock that is Jesus because he is taking it. And he says, I need it all. Give me all of it. He soaks it all in. He experiences all of it to the point of death. He experiences darkness. Why? So that we can have light. He experiences death. Why? So that we can have life. You see? He experiences the despair and the coldness. Why? So that we can have the warmth of God and the embrace of God. To the fullest, he dies. So that we can experience the joy and the embrace of God. The presence of God. You know, at the end of the book of Revelation, you read, now the dwelling place of God is with man. It's the same word. The tabernacle of God is man. Thou my great father, I thy true son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. You know what that means? You are the tabernacle of God. You are the temple of God. His glory fills you, is inside you, fills your life. If Jesus Christ paid for your sins and your darkness, your brokenness, The earth is falling apart, right, when there's darkness. Your lives are falling apart. We've all been there. We experience that brokenness regularly sometimes in our lives. When you come to know God intimately through Jesus, you know that he took everything that we deserved and we received everything that he deserved. His glory fills our lives. You no longer stand outside and just kind of listen and eavesdrop on God faintly. You're in his glory presence. 
When you read the Bible like that, knowing that you are in his glory presence, it shapes the way you view your relationship with God. It shapes the way you pray. It shapes the way you read the scriptures. It shapes even the way we do church. We forget that a lot of times because we think it's a club in here. We think it's a, we think it's a country club in here a lot of times. This is us dwelling in the glory presence of God. That's why we come to worship. You see that? This is what you've been wanting all of our lives. We're so desperate to get into that circle or to that circle. We get so put off when we're not in a certain circle. You don't just get a glimpse. Those are just glimpses of the beauty. God is so close to you. That ultimate glory is so close, so near to you, so intimate with you. He's in you. He comes in. So how do you apply it? I'm going to go very quickly. How do you apply it? One, if you have new life, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Light is life, right? If you have new life, that life is eternal. That means you have intimacy with God. And if you do, you will live with consistency, you will live with character, and you will live with integrity in your life. You will live more focused on building up the character of your relationship with God and that, that, not the character of your career. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's important because a lot of us are still living and doing things in the darkness. We're hiding those things, right? That's what Christianese is. We're speaking Christian, right? Number two, you're going to live winsomely. You're going to live consistently. You're going to live winsomely. If you follow him, his beauty passes into you. That means that as you heal, that darkness and the coldness that was once there, as it starts to heal, right, there's a, a grace that gets reborn in you. It's not that, it's not just the coldness is gone, a warmth develops. It's not that now, like, you're no longer rejected, right? You've lived your life that way, but now that you know that you're not rejected, you're going to live now accepting others, particularly people who are different than from you. Ever read Pride and Prejudice? One of my favorite books, actually, it's my favorite book. In Pride and Prejudice, you have Elizabeth Bennett. She finally, towards the end of the book, she's finally now at Pemberley. She has turned away from Mr. Darcy, she has so much prejudice and bias against Mr. Darcy. And she shows up at Pemberley, and Darcy's not supposed to be there, right? She shows up at Pemberley, and how does she start to realize that maybe my assumptions about Darcy are wrong? How does she start to see? His servants, they all speak well of him. His servants, they all love him. And she starts to realize that even these low people that would be considered low in a man of Darcy's stature, he embraces them. They love him. He becomes winsome. How are you with people who are particularly different from you? Thirdly, you live courageously. On one hand, you're very winsome, but light exposes. The more you get to know somebody, you start to think, why did God place me in their lives? Why did God place them in my life? And so the more you get to know somebody, there's more light. You're more winsome. Then there's more life. And as there's more life, life is truth. I mean, light is truth. It reveals and exposes the dark areas of our lives. There are people in our church who I see are incredibly winsome people. They're very attractive in terms of character. People love to be around these people. But what I love about some of these guys is that they also have no fear of addressing the more they get close to somebody, hey, I see certain things in you. 
you need to address these things in your life because you're being consumed. You're, you're falling apart here. You see? Most of us were too afraid. We don't want to pursue what it means to speak in love. If you really love somebody, you would want them to flourish. You would want them to be lit up, you see, in a good way, right? There will be a genuine concern for their well-being and God's honor. You're going to do it with, that means, and if you do it with the character of God because his glory passes into you, you're going to do it with compassion and love and humility. Fourthly, you're going to live peacefully. The world is filled with fear. Right now, the world is filled with fear, right? This is going to be, I could say this now, I could say this 10 years from now, and it would still have different meaning, and yet it still is going to have meaning, right? Right now, the world is in fear, but I'm going to tell you this, and no matter how bad it gets, I'm going to tell you this, the fear will always be even more great than the disease itself. The fear will always be greater than the reality. That's why it's called fear, right? Because it's bad, and then it makes you afraid of something worse, right? That's what fear is. And there's all, fear creates almost a hysteria, whether it's founded or not, and that hysteria spreads, and it's not productive, and it's not courageous. Now, peace doesn't mean, peace doesn't mean that you live recklessly. Well, I don't care. That's, that's arrogance. You see that? With peace comes wisdom. With peace comes a knowledge of what is important over what is urgent. That makes sense? With peace comes a, a, a consciousness of your role in a particular situation and a groundedness because of who's in charge and who's in control. I know people who think that peace means to be reckless or thoughtless. That doesn't mean you're wise, right? Especially in our day today. You've got to take care of one another. You've got to be sensitive to what's going on. But gospel wisdom takes over so you don't live in anxiety. You don't live in fear. And you're going to live wisely and you're going to teach other people to live wisely. How do you do that? You've got to practice intimacy with God in these worst times just like you would in the best times because his presence is passing in you. Right? You practice the intimacy of God anywhere because God's presence is everywhere in you. Let that give you peace. You know what it takes to believe? There are people here in this room who says, I get it, but I'm not even sure right now. I used to think I was a Christian after coming to Metro. I'm not even sure. You know, maybe I've been living a religious life all my life, or maybe there are people here who say, you know, I'm not a Christian, but this is very intriguing. This is very interesting to me. It speaks to me. What does it take to actually believe? The amazing thing is, what does it take to believe anything? Because if you have to try to believe something, it means you don't believe. The very nature of belief is you don't do anything. You just do. What does it take to see something? It doesn't take work. If you have to work to see something, your eyes are bad. You see what I'm saying? Right? And that's why over and over you see in the, in, in the Bible, behold Christ. Look. It doesn't take much to look. Right? My prayer is that God's glory will pass into you. Do you see Jesus? Are you gripped and captivated by his beauty and his presence, what he, who he is and what he's done for you? My prayer is that God's glory will then pass into you to birth in you gospel character, gospel winsomeness, gospel courage, gospel wisdom, and gospel peace. Let's pray together.